Hi, and welcome to the Red Tunic Podcast, a podcast where I look to rediscover what makes gaming fun and enjoyable by having a positive conversation with those related to the industry. Today, I'm joined by Shelby Molladina, COO and co-founder of Double Loop Games. Hi, Shelby. How are you doing today? Good. How are you? I'm doing all right. Thanks for asking. So, Shelby, before we get started, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and Double Loop Games? Sure. Um, well, I have been uh, basically a lifelong gamer. Um, from when I was a child, I was I, I loved games before I really realized other girls weren't playing games. And it was just kind of a lifelong dream. And we can talk about that a little bit later, how I really got into games. But these days, um, I, as you mentioned, I'm the COO and co-founder and the game director of Double Loop Games, which I co-founded in 2019 with Emily Greer. We are a free-to-play mobile studio making games for people who don't consider themselves to be gamers, but who do play games. So people who are playing games for an hour or two a day, wanting really relaxing, delightful experiences, but just don't have that sort of identity as a gamer. And um, there's there's all kinds of implications of what that means when you have the identity of being a gamer versus someone who loves games and doesn't have that identity. So. Um, we are trying to make games for a really wide range of people who love games and are looking for a really nice, relaxing, delightful experience. And, you know, that's really great just because um, it sounds like you're trying to make things more accessible. And to me, in my opinion, that's a fantastic thing just because there's always seems to be um, this really big chance of you know, like the gates are closed kind of mentality when it comes to gaming. And, you know, anything that's helping to to remove that in, you know, any way, shape or form is is fantastic to me, just because my opinion has always been that games should be something that everyone can enjoy because, you know, they, they can be a lot of fun. And the more you can enjoy them and enjoy them with other people, the better they can be. Or at least that's my opinion. I completely, with, completely agree with everything you just said. Um... Yeah, and the, the gatekeeping comment you made sort of stood out to me that sometimes it's a social or community gatekeeping, but it also shows up in games, sometimes unintentionally. When a game is made for a, quote, gamer, um, the way that art and UI and language is used in the game can kind of signal to someone who isn't a hardcore gamer identifying that way. It can signal to them, like, this game is not for you. Go away. And even if it wasn't intended, um, that tends to happen. And so... Yeah, I, I think making games that are really welcoming and low friction and, like I said, relaxing, but something that people can pick up and say, yeah, this game is for me. Um, that is kind of what we're going for. And I also agree with what you said about games are something that I, th I really think there's something for everyone in games and games can be such a wide variety of experiences. I do consider games to be art. <laughs> Maybe we'll get into that later, but they're they're beautiful. They're sad, their stories, their experiences, they're just such a rich medium that uh, I really think there can be something for everyone in some game. Um, and yeah, we are, we are obviously not making every type of game for every person, but we are making a slice of games for people that we think deserve a richer experience than they may have been given so far. And yeah, and that definitely makes sense in my mind um also because you know like i don't i don't know how to phrase this correctly so bear with me on the terms that i use however 
in the past when I've seen games, um, especially mobile games, targeted at people that aren't explicitly gamers, they're usually exploitative in nature. I don't know if I handled that word mm. right. But they always, for me, they always felt like they were trying to um, take advantage of the situation for someone not potentially understanding it. Now, I'm not saying that's like what you're looking to do. And, you know, from what you said, it, I'm, I'm you know, going to presume that's definitely not what you're looking to do. But, you know, it's, I think it's great that just having the potential for honest games for people that, you know, just want to relax that aren't, like you said, going to always be up on the, the, the lingo used or what have you, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I know what you're talking about. And, um, yeah, that's definitely not what we're doing with kind of exploiting a lack of knowledge. It's more about helping people who open a game and may not know what to do, making that experience really comfortable. Like, okay, we'll lead you over here and we'll give you some really clear goals and some delightful things to do. And over time, we'll offer you really meaningful interactions and and it's sort of about the way we roll that out and the way we present it, as well as leading them into deeper gameplay than than they might have gotten to if it was just put into their face right up front. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that that makes sense. Um, you know, it almost it almost sounds similar to the approach for for games like Animal Crossing or you know Story of Seasons or Harvest Moon. Um, I don't know if that's the best. Uh, parallel to make for what you're trying to say but to me that that kind of it comes off with the same you know like introduce people slowly to everything and as they're going uh, give them the chance to you know go from the shallow end to the deep end you know yeah I mean there are definitely a lot of parallels I love those games that you mentioned I, although I haven't played the latest Harvest Moon the story of seasons one um, but I yeah Animal Crossing I got really into that at the beginning of the pandemic for a few months um, but yeah, there are a lot of parallels with that idea that in Animal Crossing is a great example where they bring you to the island and they teach you a few activities um, and then the night comes and then the, the next day comes and some more activities open up and it's a very like curated, slow experience. Um, and so you can't do it exactly the same way on mobile. The pacing of things is very different on mobile. If you were to not let someone into your core gameplay for say two or three hours on mobile, you would lose a lot more people than you lose on an Animal Crossing where they've spent $60 and they're invested and they're ready to spend all that time. So um, it's a pacing is different, but the concepts are definitely the same. And yeah, that's great. And, you know, I like I really hope the best for for what you're looking to do, just because I'm 100 percent on board with that concept. I think it's a fantastic uh well, again, if I'm using this one right, but like the the, the design philosophy or the what have you, um, I, I think it's fantastic and hopefully it works out for you just because, like I said, I, I think more experiences or games like that need to exist just to help cater to people that are kind of, you know, half in and half out on whether or not they want to get into the hobby, you know? That's very true. And I was thinking about even a game like Animal Crossing, you know, the way they do that if they were to hit you with all of the systems right up front, even a gamer, someone who identified as a gamer, they you could feel very overwhelmed. And it is really smart that to roll things out, let people get comfortable with a small part of the core loop, add on things, start to expand the world, expand the game. And that's just, I think, actually good game design. It's 
it's really about it, it. And then it's about how do you tailor the presentation and the language to the audience that you're speaking to? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I understand what you're saying. I, I agree. You know, it's, uh, you know, it, it, that's an important thing. And it, I think it all goes back to accessibility at that point. Yeah, yeah. So with, um, you know, kind of segueing off of uh, the topic of game design and such, how did you get into developing and making video games? Um, so it's a little bit of a long story, but I grew up, I'll give you the long version. <laughs> you could tell me if you want the slightly shorter version, but um, so my family lived out in the country, out in rural Oregon, and we had seven acres. We, our nearest, I couldn't even see our nearest neighbor's house. We had farm, you know, horses next door and trees all around us and things. And I had a really wonderful childhood. It was lots of outdoor time, but really early on also, my mom brought a computer home. She was an accountant, a CPA, and she was really ahead of the curve in getting a computer at home in like 1983 or 84. So I was able to start playing pretty simple games on the computer at home. And we have these pictures of like me playing and my little brother in his diaper, like watching me play and helping me figure stuff (laughs) out. And it started, so it started for us in the early eighties and just how she let us get exposed and get comfortable. And then, so I always loved it as a hobby, but I didn't really think of it as a career until a little bit later, around the year 1991 or 92, my mom got a better computer and it had better graphics and it had colors and all these things. And um, the first, and I'd been, again, she's being an accountant. We'd spend all this time in software stores, like software, et cetera. And she'd be looking for accounting software. And I would be over in the game section, staring at these boxes and we didn't have a computer that could run it at the time, but I saw these boxes for King's Quest Six and The Secret of Monkey Island, and they just had this beautiful art, and I would just read the stories and kind of dream about what was in those boxes and what the worlds were like. And so when we got a computer that could actually run those games, it just really opened up my world, and I played them, and I read the guidebooks cover to cover and just played them over and over and over. And for me, it was the, the richness of the world the art was beautiful. The characters were interesting. There was a fairy tale element in the King's Quest games. Um, and I just started to devour them. And at that time, I started to think, you know, I don't know what this is or what you even do when you make games, but I just know that this is what I want to do. And it for me, it was, it was just such a like lighting up moment of this is stimulating something passionate in my brain and I don't know what it is or what to do with it, but I want to do it. And so I started at that time I read, I I had a subscription to computer gaming world and there just really wasn't that much information about how to make games. I read a little bit about Roberta Williams who designed the King's quest games. I just read every little bit that I could. And over the years thought about it, I played lots of adventure games. I started branching out into RPGs as they became available and point and click adventure games became less common. I started playing some strategy games. Um, I started trying to give my, best friends copies of the games I was playing and they were like what is this and I kind of learned that oh yeah the other girls my age are not playing games and it was something I didn't really know so it kind of became a thing I was just doing on my own and then um, by the time I got to college I thought about it a lot I was like you know I like to write I like to do art but I'm not a professional artist I did sort of dabble with the idea of doing an art degree but I decided that getting a computer science degree seemed like the best way for me to have an in into making games. And um, so that's what I did. I, my sophomore year in college, I 
spoke to an advisor at the computer science department. I was at the University of Oregon and I was like, I've never written code before. Is it even possible for me to do the computer information science degree here? And he was like, yes, let me help you sign up for these 101 classes. You'll start learning C++. And he really encouraged me to not be intimidated by the fact that I'd never done it before because a lot of the people in that degree had been writing code since they were children. And I was like, how could I even possibly break into this? I'm so far behind. But all it took was just getting a few of the right entry-level CS courses. And I was like, wow, I wrote my first, so cliched, but I wrote my first hello world code and I was, my mind was blown. And I was like, I did something and it worked and something showed up on the screen. This is amazing. And I could just immediately start to see how, wow, you expand that out and you start to understand uh, logic gates and how you could start to construct really complex logic trees for dialogue and just, wow, this is how games are made. So I took, you know, I took the next couple of years and I got my computer science degree. Um, at the time when I graduated college in 2002, I applied to all kinds of game companies. Um, I'd had a local internship at a company called Brave, uh, Brave, Brave Tree. And they were awesome. They gave me a chance and I spent some time doing prototypes and paper designs and things with them, but they couldn't hire me. They were still just getting started. So I had to go get a job at a non-game software company in Seattle. And I moved up there for a few years and I still loved and wanted to get into games, but I just felt like, okay, I'll get some experience. And that's generally my advice to people is get some experience, build a portfolio. Even if it's not the exact dream job you want first, get some experience and it worked out for me in that then I was able to come back to Eugene after a few years and I spoke to um, Dan White was the tech director at Pipeworks. He's the, one of the co-founders of Pipeworks as well. And because I knew another game company, Eugene, the people from Brave Tree, they recommended me back from that internship long ago. And I had coding experience and I had started working on um, learning how to write graphics shaders. So he hired me at Pipeworks, uh, gave me a chance as a gameplay programmer and a level designer. And he said, hmm, I think you might also become a producer at some point. And I was like, what is that? <laughs> so the good thing about working at a small studio at Pipeworks was that there was just a lot of opportunity to sort of jump in and learn all aspects of the business. So in my years there, I, I would often say, well, I don't know how to do that. Somebody needs to do it, let me try. And so I learned a lot about design, um, I moved somewhat away from programming after a few years to focus more on design and production. I learned all about production. I got into business development, which I just mean the pitching of the games. Um, I don't negotiate the deals, but you know, pitching our game in our studio and representing our studio to publishers and companies outside of Eugene. And then, and that was really the start of my career. Um, after eight years there, I moved on and I worked some time at Roblox. I went to DNA, which is where I moved my focus from console, mostly console and PC titles to mobile titles at DNA and learned all about live operations and how um, they make their games really fun and interesting and release content for years and years. And then I went to Warner Brothers and I was there for about four and a half years where I worked as the head of central product management and worked with all the studios, NetherRealm um, and Turbine and the San Francisco studio um, and studios in Seattle and London and Canada. And I got to work with all the studios, mobile and console on sort of 
how to improve their live operations and designs that support the ability to run live events and um, do interesting things in the long run. So at that point, then I felt like it was time to get back to making games directly rather than kind of advising all the studios on on improving and best practices. So that was when Emily and I started talking about Double Loop. And yeah, like that's, uh, that is a, I'm trying to think of the right word. Um, a varied, uh, that's a varied set of experience. Like, you know, that sounds like a lot of, um, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm really struggling to, to find the, the right word for it, but it sounds like you've had a lot of experience in all over the, like in all sorts of different areas, um, and getting to, you know, have exposure to all sorts of different areas. So that's, that's really cool. Cause I don't, from my understanding, at least that's, that's not incredibly typical. Now, by all means, correct me if I'm wrong. I don't, I can't speak, you know, to that too much, but just, you know, that sounds like it's something that you would, you know, not see every day, you know? I think that is true from, you know, some people are really amazing specialists and they, you know, um, this is not, not all artists are this way, but for example, an artist who's an amazing artist and they're concept artists and they focus their energy on that and, um, you know, progress and they may do lots of variety of things within art, become an art director and things like that, like a little more focus. So there's a lot of people like that and their talent and interests take them that way. Um, there are a lot of people, maybe more people in the design and product and pro producer areas who are a little bit more um, fluid because kind of the business of making games and the player experience, those things are really interlocked. And uh, a person who's really good at design or production or product management has a really good sen holistic sense of what makes a, good, a game good top to bottom and also how to build a game top to bottom. So I wouldn't say that everyone gets the experience to sort of stretch their legs and try all these things out and make mistakes and learn from them. Um, but I, I would say that there are a lot of people who have the interest if they had the opportunity, but it isn't always structured that way. Mm -hmm. And that, that makes sense. And, you know, like I was, I, I realized the word I, before is I just want to say, it sounds like you had an exciting career. That's <laughs> what yeah. I was trying to say and forgetting. Yeah. Um, I, and I, one thing I didn't really say is the other bit that I've been really lucky that's been really varied is the genre of games I've worked on. I started off working on um, Rampage Total Destruction, a brawler on GameCube. I worked on Godzilla Unleashed. Later, I got to work on Zumba Fitness. Um, Night at the Museum was a kind of an action, but kind of an adventure story game. Got to work on lots of mobile games, um, you know, strategy and character collection and simulation and all kinds of things so for me it's not really been about like like for some people they would say i want to work on the biggest triple a console rpg out there and i want to spend the next five of my years five years of my life and that is the game i really dream about working on and for me i would love that but i also get a lot of joy out of a variety of experiences and learning from the different games and and platforms I've worked on. So that the, the typical part of my my experience has been kind of getting that breadth of of game types. Um, whereas like you kind of touched on earlier, some people don't have that variety, but that also 
is okay because there is a great demand for people who have really specialized in a certain kind of game. So there's just kind of room for different types of focus. Mm -hmm. And yeah, that makes perfect sense um, as well. You know, it's, it's sometimes, you know, I, and I can't speak to, to everyone, but me personally, you know, when you are focused in on one kind of thing a lot, that thing can kind of get uh, boring. I use that word a little loosely here. Um, yeah. And, you know, getting to see everything else, it's going to keep it fresh, especially in um, an industry where there seems to be a lot of cross-pollination, um, especially right now, um, with different genres and game types. So having the ability to get such a large amount of exposure, I imagine that can only be a good thing when you're looking at what could potentially work uh, in terms of, you know, um, you know, new things that maybe 10 years ago you you know someone else wouldn't you know you wouldn't be able to but like you know with the the way the industry is now with everything just mixing and matching just being able to say oh yeah we can do this and this or this and this is only going to be a benefit at least that's my my view i think that's really true um i think if there is a particular job listing that says we want somebody who has x number of years on this genre you know that is not going to be a specific opportunity that's great for me. But at this point in my career, what I really want is to be able to take my almost 20 years in the industry, which is crazy, but to take that and those varied experiences and to be able to look at the market holistically and the audiences and what I know about games and building games and genres and to say, okay, I can bring all of those things together to create an experience that isn't just a regurgitation of something that existed before. And I think that's exactly what you're talking about is to be able to holist. I always think about game design holistically or game development holistically, I should say, not design, um, just because there's so many different elements that come into it. And it's not just our design engineering, put them together. It's also audience and market and timing and approach and budget and all those things. And so, yeah, having, having that wide base of experience has put me in a position to be able to feel confident in leading the game development at our studio. And, and, and from that, I mean, leading the production and the design and the plan for what game should we make. And of course, I have Emily as my partner on that and we make those decisions together, but we've got pretty clear role where she's really clearly leading the business and the publishing and fundraising side. And I'm clearly leading the game development side and the game strategy side. So we have lots of overlap, but also very clear roles, which really works for us. And and each of us having pretty well-rounded um, view of kind of each half of the industry, when you think about development and publishing, then putting that together has been what we feel like is really part of our sort of superpowers and secret sauce at Double Loop. Mm, and that's that's great. Um, and you know, like, having having that kind of supports the wrong word but having that kind of i'm just going to partnership is i you know that just sounds like it it takes uh, takes a lot of pressure off of um you and lets you do uh, what you're best at and lets you know lets everything kind of move smoothly yeah i feel that way 100% i when i used to think about whether i'd want to start my own studio i would think about the games i'd want to make but then i would think but i don't want to do I don't want to lead up the fundraising and I don't want to have to figure out how we publish. And those kinds of things were like, I could figure them out, but they don't bring me joy to use sort of a cliched phrase, but it's true. 
And so when Emily and I started talking about doing this, it just was such a natural fit where she can focus on the things she's really great at. And I can focus on the things that I feel strong at and that bring me joy and that, you know, I support the fundraising and I do pitches, but she's really organizing that effort. And so um, like, that's just one example where exactly what you said, it sort of unlocks us each to do the things that we're best at. Mm, and that's great. Now, as someone with such a wide uh, breadth of experience, do you have any advice for those seeking to get into the industry based on what you've went through and how you did everything? Yeah. You know, I, I do have a few core things that are, um, I'm not going to get as granular as like recommending a specific program or not, but I would say that it's really important to build something and have a portfolio of some kind. And um, I sort of did, touched on it when I was talking earlier, but one thing I did was I started working on my master's degree um, while I was working for the other software company, pre-games. And I, as part of that, wrote a graphics shader, um, that piece of code that was actually something concrete that I could then bring to my interview at Pipeworks. And that was really a game changer because if you have a piece of code and a portfolio item you can bring, then actually interviewers often really like it because they can sort of, it gives them direction and something to dig into with you and ask you questions about and talk about your thought process. So for me, that was a much better way to show my thought process and understanding than um, if they had given me a whiteboard test, which I was not ever really going to excel at because I wasn't the very best coder, but I am a person who really understands games. So it kind of helps you to some degree shape the narrative. Now, if they're looking for one type of engineer and you're not that type of engineer, it's not really going to help, but really bringing your material um, to bear really, really helps. So I would say practice, put together portfolio, whether that's art or design, start playing with game development tools. Um, do as much as you can to understand game development holistically. Even if you're focused on being an artist, actually being able to uh, put together a little prototype in Game Maker Studio shows a lot of um, drive and that understanding of the game making process holistically. So that's number one, really. Um, number two would be to, I think, realistically at this point a degree of some kind is very very helpful i would have said you know 20 years ago there were more people getting in who didn't have a degree who could start in qa become an engineer or just start as a really great engineer um, without a degree i would say that's much less typical than it used to be so i would look at a program of some kind um, and then the third kind of pillar of it where I, if possible is networking and I, I did touch on this earlier, but the internship I had at Bravetree, even to get that internship was a whole like three degrees of separation of like somebody I knew who then, who I said I wanted to do this and they told somebody else and that person like through the grapevine was like, oh, let's talk. So you have to be talking about it and telling people what you're looking for and just also doing that sincerely, like being a good person and making friends helps. Um, you know, so, so I got my internship at Bravetree that then later in a totally indirect way helped me get my job at Pipeworks in a way I could have never predicted. But on top of that, um, 
you can do things like volunteer at GDC and start to just, you know, not be pushy at all, but just take the opportunities that are there to get to know how things work, get to know people. Um, you don't always need to be like, I need to, I need to network with Sid Meier, you know, the top game designer at this, my dream game. You don't, you don't need to do that necessarily. Like start to make communities of other people who want to get into games and other indie developers and encourage each other. That also helps your motivation quite a lot. Share your problems, get people's input. So it doesn't even always have to be like network with someone who can give you a job, but start to network with other people who love games, who want to make games and help each other. And, and that also is very helpful. You know, that's, that's all of that is just fantastic advice. And I always love, um, what people have to say. Um, cause you know, there always seems to be, and I don't mean this in a negative way. There always seems to be a, um, a little bit of consistent overlap in your case, it was, um, tangently the, the portfolio and, you know, finishing a project or having something to show, but it's always great to hear everything because it's, it's always such great advice. And it's, you know, even for things that are not 100% game related, um, it can be good advice in just in general, if that makes any sense. So it's, so thank you for sharing that. Cause it's, I, I think it's fantastic. And hopefully other people uh, also, you know, find, uh, find how, realize how great that advice is as well. You're welcome. I was thinking about something. I, I recently did a, actually a, cl a Zoom class with my son's fifth grade class on games. And it was like kind of an overview of what all the roles are and how you do this. But I was thinking about one of the other things I was encouraging them to do is just to realize how like your diverse interests that you might not think are directly about games will actually really help you and make you a stronger game developer. So if you like writing movie scripts, that you should do that. And that, that is, I don't mean just go make a game prototype. I mean, explore your other interests because over time, as you, as these different types of games develop and are um, emerging, then those sorts of interests really, really support that as well. And for example, like my husband and I make short films for events, sometimes um, like the 48 hour film project. Well, we have a little group, we make little short films. We are not good at filmmakers, but that creative process sort of, always teaches us something new about figuring out problems. And that is also something I think is really core to game development is that no two games are ever the same. And if you like problem solving and you like being like, how are we going to build this thing out of nothing? How are we going to solve this thing that seems important, impossible? Like that is really <laughs> core to game development. And so working through that process in other contexts, whether it's doing musical theater or making um, YouTube videos or doing art or whatever it is, just all those venues and vectors will actually help you even if they seem unrelated. So I would just say, you know, don't be scared to develop your hobbies and your passions, even if they feel a little bit like, oh, it's not games, I'm wasting time. No, that's not true. I think all of those things will make you a better game developer and game designer and help to create newer experiences in the future that are, again, not just like regurgitating games that have existed already. Mm -hmm. And yeah, like I, I, I don't want to speak for you here, but what you were saying there, it sounds a lot like, um, that you're, you're implying or what have you, that the, 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 the barrier between what is soft skill and what a hard skill is, is getting, you know, weaker or, you know, soft skills are just becoming far more relevant now. And I think that's also great advice because a lot of people, I don't think realize 
how transferable what they know or what they're good at doing can be applied to to everything else like you had said you know writing um if you like writing scripts well there's a lot of um you know there's a there's that's that's very transferable to 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 a lot of things but game you know game design or just that that process especially because if you're if you're writing scripts it means you're also going to be thinking about a lot of the nitty-gritty stuff and all of that's always applicable elsewhere especially you know as i said in game design so that's that is also great advice so thank you for that yeah you're welcome and i i think the only um you know refinement i would put on that is that having a hard skill to contribute is a really important thing for getting in the door it can be it, it can be very tough to like get a resume it's like I am a cinematic writer and I know that I'd be able to apply my skills to doing this to games, but I've never done anything related to games. Like that is a really tough one where you're like, I'm, I really like you as a person. I think you do have promise, but it's hard to slot them in right then. So I think a combination, I think what I'm definitely trying to say is all those soft skills really combine powerfully in many cases to make you a better game developer and better game designer, but to also focus on what is the hard skill that you can bring in to, to get started, to be um, able to contribute right away. That makes perfect sense as well. I didn't mean to yeah. unintentionally dismiss the, the notion of hard skills, but no, thank you for, for elaborating. Cause yeah, that's, that's, you know, just always great advice. Now I do want to ask this cause you know, you said you started gaming as a young child. What was your favorite game as a child? And what was it about that game that, that did it for you? Yeah, so I always mentioned King's Quest VI and The Secret of Monkey Island as being really kind of transformative for me, but because they really, they were the first of the more visually interesting adventure games that I loved and spent time with. But actually, after I found those, someone introduced me to the Quest for Glory series, which was basically an adventure game with graphics, but it also had light RPG elements. So you could decide what your class was. You could be a fighter or a thief or a wizard, and you could put points into those. And you could, if I was, I always, I always was a thief. I always wanted to just like pick up everything that wasn't nailed down. And I've always played all games that way for some reason. And then I would add some magic and I would try to like game the system and be able to do everything a thief can do and everything a wizard can do. And so it gave you a little, like this very early taste of strategy that wasn't just a linear story like walking simulator. So, um, you know, of, of those, I think Quest for Glory 4, which is set, actually I can't think of the name of the location it was set in, but that was like the first one I really fell in love with. And then I went back and played Quest for Glory 1. No, sorry, 3 was the first one I played that I loved. And then I went back and played 1, 2, 4, and 5. So I think that game really bridged the gap for me from adventure games into um, a longer, you know, a, a lifelong love of really deep RPGs and strategy games. So I love the Civ games. Um, in more recent years, my I think this is all sort of accumulated in some way. My favorite game, I have to say, is Stardew Valley. And I've been playing it on and off for five years. I've got, I, this is terrible. I've got like 800 hours in it over all the different devices. 
And I just, you know, I've started it over. It's a game that you have a lot of flexibility in, which is kind of what I loved about Quest for Glory. Like back in those days, it's like you can play it as a farmer. You can play it as a social game. You can play it focusing on combat. You can play it however you want. You can just, you know, mess around. You can play it slow. You can play it fast. And there's a lot of creativity. Um, so over the, over the years, as games that have allowed creativity to be part of it as well, I've, I've enjoyed that a lot. Um, I got a, I did go down a rabbit hole with Animal Crossing New Horizons in March and April, where I started painting individual textures and figured out how to make um, the big yellow brick road spiral from The Wizard of Oz. And I posted it on Reddit, and it went somewhat viral. Like, that's definitely the highest voted thing I've ever done. And that was really fun. So I, I really like the intersection of creativity in games as well. And that's great. And there's something I just want to touch on because you had mentioned Stardew as your, you know, your, your seemingly all-time favorite at this point. Um, you had mentioned the newest story season not being able to, to haven't played it yet. Now, this might seem or be a very much interest to you. And it, for me, it, it was fascinating in that the newest story of season to me feels like they saw what Stardew did and wanted to take a crack at it, which is, in my mind, just aw like just awesome because you have a game that 100% started as a love letter to that series, and then it mm -hmm. seems like the series is now taking inspiration from its own love letter. That's um, awesome. Yeah, and like, you know, I, I can't speak for certainty on that just from, you know, what I've seen and all of that. But yeah, I just wanted to mention that just because I it might thought you might have been interested in it. That is, I'm very interested in that. It's really interesting because I've been, on the one hand, I try to avoid spoilers, so I haven't read much about it. But, I, but you actually, just now, you probably said the thing that makes me more interested in it than anything I've heard so far, because I would love to see a Harvest Moon that, sort of overcame some of the things that make it high a little higher friction or a little more frustrating and I'm actually I'm really is there more you can say like what do you what do you think that they they changed in story of seasons that's like inspired by Stardew I would love to hear about that yeah sure so I can I can touch on that briefly and I I have to be careful because I I should say I haven't personally played it my girlfriend's playing it and I watch and uh -huh. she's telling me about it so everything is you know uh, secondhand ish information okay um but no, so they've added a, a, a cool little crafting system that you can basically do just on the fly, similar to Stardew. Um, they've kind of streamlined um, how you manage your inventory system and all of that. But the thing that I felt most interesting was they made it so your farm is more modular in that you can uh, move your, your, you know, your chicken coops around. You can you know, drop them all in a row. Um, you now have the ability to make um, makers. Um, so instead of, you know, previously where you would buy a, um, egg incubator or you would buy a, um, a cheese maker or what have you, you just make those and then you just put things into them in the same way that you would in Stardew. And it's just, you know, it, it spits it out over time. So, you know, you put a bunch of raw lumber or wood into a machine and it spits out lumber that you then use for crafting. Um, they've given the ability to, uh, to make sprinklers and such. So, you know, what used to be, um, you know, could be a whole day of, you know, in my, in my world, a whole day of growing pineapples the moment summer started and make sure they were watered. So that way, by the end of summer, you had, you know, properly got the three cycles in and everything. 
but that was your entire summer. You mm -hmm. no longer have to do that. You just drop some sprinklers and you now have the freedom to enjoy the game in a much like you just have the freedom to enjoy the game without as much pressure to waste all your stamina doing, you know, X, Y, and Z right out the gate. I love that because I love what those upgrades did in Stardew that it sounds like they've added there is it lets you still have the fun of the strategic thinking. So when do I need to start this? What am I going to plant? Where am I going to put it? So you still have that higher level strategic thinking without the friction or boredom of press the same button over and over 4,000 times, um, which really, I used to do it, but I just find as I get older, I'm just less and less willing to do that in the long run. It is something that'll make me turn out of a game a lot faster. And I can definitely understand that because, you know, um, for me, the biggest pull to, to Harvest Moon and, and Story of Seasons was always the, the charm of it. Mm -hmm. But, you know, like you said, the, the friction, the, the, the gameplay loop, when you are trying to run those big farms, you know, that's, it becomes monotonous. And at that point, you're like, just give me something, please. Like, I don't, I don't want to do this. Like, I, I personally in Harvest Moon 64, like the last month or two before like the quote unquote end of the game, um, I was literally wake up, feed animals, sleep, wake up, feed animals, sleep. Like I did the bare minimum because I just wanted that dopamine hit to go, it's done. And then yeah. at that point, the, the the stress of that could go and I could maybe do some more things and not have to worry about, you know, all the other um, X, Y, and Zs that needed to be done. So, yeah, and like the newest story seasons, it definitely looks like it took a very sincere swing at that. And just watching all of the um, new implementations just makes me look at that and think, wow, they, they took credit or not credit, they took inspiration from their from a love letter to them and that's that's like really weird high praise and i say weird wrongly there but like that's it's i think it's just wild that they did that or i'm i'm presuming they did that just because um the se the series didn't really have that kind of evolution until now you know yeah and i don't see anything wrong with that because games are all sort of in a continuum of influencing each other and they don't exist in a vacuum. And um, I know Eric Baroni, the developer of Stardew Valley has met the designer, the original designer of Harvest Moon and Story of Seasons and they've talked about it. And I, I think they respect each other. And um, if you can find inspiration and build on it and make something even better, it's like, that's how games improve over time. So I don't see anything wrong with that idea that Story of Seasons found itself in a position where it's like, oh, we got to evolve. <laughs> the audience has changed. The audience wants something different. We can offer that. Like, that's great, I think. Yeah, and like, yeah, just the 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 thought of, you know, the, the just the ability of them to acknowledge that is also wild to me. Just because mm -hmm. um, in some, uh, I don't want to say industries, but in some um, games, you'll, you'll find that, you know, the developer's might not look at what other people are doing and give them as much credit but you know you have when you have games that look like they are willing to to you know to to do that it's i don't know that's just fantastic to me just because like you said it's it almost becomes this um i'm really struggling for the word it almost becomes this like cooperation in what people are trying to do and what the community is also evolving to want you know mm -hmm. yeah and 
you you sort of um, made me think about something I a topic that I think about a lot is that game development is hard and I think people know this but people who are making games are doing it for the most part because they love it and they're passionate and so that you know from the outside in sometimes it can look like well the developers were just stubborn and they didn't want to do this thing or the developers were I've heard if they say this about movie scripts or about games like they were lazy and they didn't do this or this but it's like no, actually, in, in almost all cases, if you look at it and you unwind all the decisions, it, you start to go, oh, I understand the context here. They had these principles and these make sense from this point of view. And they looked at this evolution. And they thought we could we could experiment. We could incorporate this. And sometimes it works out and sometimes it doesn't. But I always think it's a little bit sad. And I want to talk to people about this. Like when people sort of attribute these uh, motivations to developers or designers that sort of are very reductionist about the multi-year process that goes into making design decisions. I I think there's just so much more there and context there that if people knew they would sort of humanize the process. Um, because like you said, some companies are, you know, they have a reason that they are like, these are our pillars and this is what makes our game our game. And sometimes they're right and sometimes they're wrong. And then there are other companies that are more like a fast follow, chasing whatever's new and shiny in the market. And then there are companies that kind of blend those approaches. Um, and, you know, each one is a different flavor and a different reasoning behind it. Um, so I just think it's, that's a bigger topic, but I, I do find myself whenever I see people kind of saying, and you were not saying this, but it just reminded me of what I see about fandom and things when they ascribe laziness or something like that to a decision that I know was probably like a six six step decision that was well reasoned all along the way. And, and I, I wish that people knew more about that sometimes. Yeah. And I completely agree. And, you know, I, I don't want to say that from what might appear that I'm standing on like a, sitting up on a horse or anything, because I myself have been guilty of, it, and I think everyone has been, but like the realization that developers are people and end of day, they just, they usually want to do what is what they think is best what is going to be the best fit for the game and they're not doing like if something if something doesn't land that's not because they're trying to do it in such a way that says well you know just deal with it it's it just didn't land but they probably weren't malicious in that and they're they're people too and you got to you got to respect that and not take what like you can't you can't take those micro um, frustrations that you're having and direct it to them because it's like nine times out of ten it's not something they did that should really warrant that frustration at them if that makes any sense definitely um yeah i mean we all we all have to make you know weigh weigh the pros and cons of things with imperfect information all along the way and Sometimes even within development, we can look back and say, oh, I wish I had done that differently. And yeah, from the outside, it's really obvious, but you didn't have information at that time. So um, that's what I, that's kind of what I mean about every game is different and you can't ever know what's going to happen and what's good, what you're going to have to deal with when you start a new one. So that's part of the challenge, part of the, part of the fun and part of the hardship of it. Yeah, 100%. You know, I, I always have the utmost respect for for developers because like you said there's a lot of things in the air that you kind of have to start juggling before you even know that you're going to have to keep them in the air so you know you you got to respect 
what like what is going on and you know you, you can't you can't take it out on them you know you got to just understand that it's a big process and sometimes things fall right yeah yeah that definitely is true now i know we're, we're getting close to time so i don't i don't um i don't want to keep you for too much longer but i do want to ask you one more question if, if you don't mind sure so how is it that you enjoy gaming now and what is it that makes gaming enjoyable to you? And I know you kind of touched on that. Um, so, you know, that might be, we might be retreading some stuff there, but. <laughs> yeah, you know, for me, there's like a lot of different things I look for in games in, in my gaming time. So my time is more limited than it used to be. I've started this company and I work a lot, I have three kids um, and, you know, life, so when I have time to play games, I'm looking for a few different things. And sometimes it's um, just relaxation and zoning out. I would say that if I do that totally mindlessly, at the end of that time, I don't feel great. I really like a game. Like I play Stardew um, a lot. I just started the expanded version of it, the mod with the expansion to discover more story and more characters. So I really like new content and new stories i don't like to replay things actually even though i've put this many hours into stardew generally i do not like to play the same game over and over just 100 percent it um so i like novelty i love to play new games i play many new games just to see what is the mechanic what's the world like what's the story like and so for the novelty i'll play a wide variety of games but i finish very few um there's some nostalgia, so if a sequel came out to one of my favorite games, I would definitely play it, but it might sit in my library for a little while before I have some time. And then, you know, a relatively newer thing is that there are games that I can play with my 10-year-old my um, where I play it. So, like, Star Wars Battlefront on PS4 is not a game that I would spend a lot of time with on my own. Um, but it really allows us to play cooperatively in a world that he likes with the characters he likes. And we have a lot of fun doing it. So I play that for that, for the social experience. We play local, you know, local co-op and that's really fun. Um, we also play Roblox together and he'll show me the story games that he likes and we'll run through it. They're cooperative. There's a game called Break-In that we like. It's kind of a timed, these things happen and people break into the house and you go to sleep and you wake up and you strategize and we do things together. And so again, like, that social experience of doing something with my son where he can set it, show me around and we can be silly and we have chat turned off. So we don't talk to other people. We just talk to ourselves. So um, I think like we were talking about earlier, games can give you such a different, ex a wide variety of experiences that um, I, I play them for different reasons. There are other games I've played a few years back, not so recently, but like don't starve that discovery element of, I crafted a thing and it unlocked it a new recipe. Like, what's next? What's next? What's next? That really, really grabs me in games. I'm always looking for that and love that as well. And that's great to hear. Now, I apologize. I lied because I remembered a question I wanted to ask you real quick. No worries. And it's perfectly valid just to say yes or no to this one. Okay. Um, so I myself grew up playing PC games and, you know, console games and all that. And for me, the first computer I got that was capable of running games so you know a pentium 120 whatever 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 day one christmas morning the first thing my father installed for me my parents are were split up or are split up and at the time we're split up so it was um 
even weirder for him to do this, but he just installed Doom. That was the first thing he installed and showed me a seven-year-old how to navigate DOS to play Doom. And I've noticed that that's typically a very dad thing to do um, because all my friends, their fathers did the same. Um, Other people I've spoken to, their fathers seem to have done the same. So the question I want to ask you is, are you the mom that's going to be doing that? Are you taking the dad's role in that one? Or are you a little more aware of what probably should be um, kept an eye on versus fathers of years back? That's interesting. I mean, so growing up, my as I mentioned earlier, my mom was the one with the computer. My dad didn't use it much. So my mom had some sense but of what was happening, but she wasn't showing me a game, but she did teach me how to like navigate the DOS prompt to open Carmen San Diego and these other games as Oregon Trail. Um, so in my, you know, my family, my husband and I both work in the games industry. Um, I would say that I started by installing apps on my son's iPad and showing him things that I thought were appropriate and fun, kind of like a dollhouse kind of game to start. Um, so, you know, to your question about like, is anyone in my household sort of giving our kids inappropriate games? I'd say no, because my husband and I are both very aware of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I am constantly sort of looking for like, when can I introduce my son to things that I love that aren't just, just his own kid game? Like recently he finally got interested in Knights of the Old Republic, which is, you know, it was a, I think it was an Xbox game when I played it and it's out on the iPad now. So he's. He's heard a little bit about the characters. He's interested in playing. So I got really excited about that. And um, so I I don't know if that exactly answers your question, but yeah, definitely no one in my family is like installing a horror game for a Mm seven-year-old. And for the record, you 100% answered my question. Okay. Um, So yes, what you basically said is, I'm going to kind of paraphrase from that, is that no, you're not going to be the mother that's just installing Doom for their child and saying, yeah, have fun, what have you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, which is, you know, fantastic that you're taking that metered approach to um, introducing them to games and such. Yeah, games are important to me. Um, and I, so I'm definitely not a no screen time kind of parent. Games are important to me. We probably, my kids do have more screen time than some others. But I also, because I see games, it's a positive thing if you choose them positively then uh, I think it can have a benefit and it it needs to be monitored you need to make sure it's appropriate but I don't in any way see them as just inherently a bad thing Mm -hmm. and you know Shelby as I said I don't want to keep you for too much longer Um, you know we all have busy lives and you especially with you know everything that seems to be on your plate right now with running a, a game company before I let you go there, is there anything that you want to make people aware of? Let anyone know, you know, I'm kind of just giving you a soapbox if you want to stand on it and you can, you can use that soapbox to basically say whatever you'd like, you know, it's, it's there for you to, to get on top of. Oh, well, yeah, I'm not much of a soapbox person. I do like to discuss things, but um, I I would say that I'm really excited that over time that people more it seems like more people see games the way I have always seen them which is they are again not inherently bad they're they can be art they can provide different experiences especially when there's really well-developed characters and story Um, there's so much richness there and that 
as opposed to this feeling when I was a kid that I was sort of like, once I realized other girls weren't playing games, I was sort of ashamed of that. Now I don't feel any shame. I feel like it's much more acceptable. I, I can, you know, people seem to be interested in games and what I'm doing, whereas before it was kind of like, uh, what? What are you doing? So I'm just really happy with that progress. And I would say to sort of anyone out there who has a passion for something that if people are kind of like, what is that? That's a waste of time. And what are you doing? You know, don't let them crush your spirit. Um, I think just, you know, follow, follow your passion and your creativity and that I, I've been really encouraged by how things have developed in that way. That wasn't very concise, but I just, I, I am really happy to just see how much, how games themselves have developed and how culture and acceptance of games have developed. And I'm really excited to see what other cool, weird, new games are made over the next few years. It's really exciting. And thank you for, for mentioning that. Cause that is something I had meant to bring up earlier. Um, and, you know, you kind of, you walked into it. So it, thank you for that. Cause it's slipped my mind, but yeah, that's, that's great advice as well as, um, a great outlook to have because you know it's the more people that are getting into it the more it's acceptable uh, is just fantastic end of day because it's just like you said it means more more crazy things are going to come out and more people are going to be involved and it just just as, as I said I think the accessibility or the gates open approach is only going to do good in the long run for for gaming as a whole totally agree all right, well, Shelby, if you don't have anything else you'd like to uh, share, uh, I'll let you get back to your day. Um, so, I yeah. I so, think so. Yeah, it was really great talking to you. Thanks for doing this and having me on. Oh, no, really, the pleasure's all mine. Thank you so much for making time to, to talk with me. I'm always happy when, you know, when I'm able to sit down and talk with, with anyone, really. Um, so, yeah, no, really, thank you so much. It's really, the pleasure's all mine. Awesome. So thanks again to our guest, Shelby Maladina, for making time to have this conversation with me, and thank you for joining us on the Red Tunic podcast, as well as special thanks to Ronald Jenkins for the use of music from the title track from Road Steep. And if you like this podcast and want to support it and help it grow, please subscribe to receive the latest updates and be sure to share it with those you think might enjoy it. Thank you and have a good day.